Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, and I'm sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts of the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that's my fact this week. My fact is that in an attempt to work out who the murderer in Charles Dickens's last unfinished novel was, the lead character was put on trial. Wow. Mm. So this is the mystery of Edwin Drood. Yeah, right? this was the final novel of Charles Dickens that he was serializing in a newspaper. There were meant to be 12 installments. He only got as far as six before he passed away. And as it was, the lead character, Edwin Drood, goes, he disappears and uh, so we never know what happened to him. And people ever since have been trying to work it out by looking for clues within it and so on. And in 1914, a mock trial was put on as part of an attempt to try and work out who, who might have murdered him. And the lead character of the book, John Jasper, was put on trial. And it was full of celebrities. The judge of the trial was G.K. Chesterton. Uh, the foreman of the jury was George Bernard Shaw. It was a very, very cool trial. And did they find him... Innocent or guilty or no? They, I think they wanted what? to go for manslaughter in the end. Um, but <laughs> right. then, uh, yeah, G.K. Chesterton got very impatient with everyone and found everyone guilty of contempt of court by the end of the day. Nice, except yeah. himself, right? Except think, himself. Yeah, but yeah. when when do you get a judge finding himself guilty of contempt of court? That is super rare. <laughs> I think that has happened. I remember that happening in America in the last few years. Really? Yeah. Is that a really good moral judge or an extremely immoral judge? It's hard to say because he just looked at himself and gone, God, even I can see that I'm terrible. (laughs) My feeling is, and I might be wrong about this, maybe a judge had his mobile phone on or something and then he got a call and he kind of found himself in contempt or something. Yeah, that rings a bell. That's really good. So fans fans of this novel are called Druids, which I think is very clever. Yes, Yeah. yeah. Um, or uh, Drudians or Drudists. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole website where you can read every single um, possible scenario or sort of outcome of what might have happened to Edwin Drood. Uh, and there's hundreds of, over the years, just so many people have been trying to work it out. There's been four movies that have been made of the book where different outcomes have been revealed at the end. Mm. There was a Broadway musical whereby the audience actually voted on who they thought it was <laughs> at the end of the show. It wasn't only that, was it? So this musical was a really big deal. I'd never actually heard of it, but it won five Tony Awards, I think. It won Best Musical wow. in the 80s and Best Actor, I think. But it was, the audience got to vote on who killed Edwin Drews and they also got to vote on various other things. So they got to vote on what was the identity of Dick Datchery, which was unknown at the time Dickens stopped writing, and they got to vote on which couple would become romantically involved in the end. And all the actors had to train up to be able to perform any scene of any of these possible outcomes. When I was a child, I had a computer game called Star Wars Chess, and uh, obviously there was a good team and an evil team, all characters from Star Wars, and every single possible move combination that you made there was a little cutscene showing you how R2-D2 defeated Darth Vader. Yeah, but not for every single possible game of chess because there's like no trillions for every for every piece combo so you would always have a good rook defeating you know um an evil uh pawn or you would have it was brilliant yeah Yeah. i'm surprised actually because (laughs) it sounds very geeky that and you never really struck me as the kind of person who would like that kind of thing yeah weird isn't it Um, speaking of which has anyone else been in a mock trial in their life no yes have you what a white school yeah same yeah yeah for what what did you both do um, arson, it turned out, and I was livid. No, I'm joking. I was a lawyer in the mock trial. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. It's really fun. That's so fun. And what? Well, hmm. they put on trial and they give you a big dossier of facts about a case. So mine was um, a, a fight in a pub. Someone had been hit with a pool cue, I think. Oh yeah. And they give you lots of different eyewitness accounts, and you have to then hold a trial. And you sometimes, I think, we went to an actual court to do this. Did you? Very exciting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Are you just, you're a juvenile delinquent and you've kind of post hoc <laughs> rationalised it as a yeah, game? That's it, yeah. Um, we went to a court when we were kids at school. Yeah. Uh, and I remember it because we were there 
basically a load of kids and then these people just kept coming up and they'd all been beating each other up the night before because it was like a wow it was basically people who had been locked up that night for assault mm -hmm. and then they were coming in doing their pleas and stuff like was that was this your school trip <laughs> Everyone else went to um, Alton Towers, but... Yeah, blimey. We sort of went to the Battle of Hastings site. And I mean, that, in a sense, was lots of people beating each other up. So I think maybe it was just um, to prepare us for the future. <laughs> God. It's weird that they felt the need to investigate it, though, because Dickens did actually finish Edwin Drew, didn't he? What? Did he? He finished it... Um, no. In, no. Yeah, no. he finished it in 1873. Um, so he, oh. he died in 1870. <laughs> uh. But... He did finish it him with a medium, but it was but it was with a medium called Thomas Power James, which I think is really cool. And this book, it was the Mystery of Edwin Drood Part Two, and he published Part One kind of cockily under his own name now, Thomas Power James. And then Part Two was what the med what he'd learned from Dickens's ghost, and it had two prefaces at the start of it: one from Thomas Power James, who was saying this is such a privilege to be able to write with Dickens, and then the other from Dickens himself <laughs> saying, "You'll notice saying, my." So there is a story that Dickens wrote to Queen Victoria mm. a few months before his death, and he was saying to her, would you like a spoiler of what happened to Edwin Drood? And she wrote back and she said, no, I'm fine, thank you. Ouch. He offered her a little more of it in advance of her subjects, and she said, no, it's cool, I'm enjoying the instalments, or whatever she said. Yeah. But we could have had Queen Victoria solving the mystery of what happened to Edwin Drood, which would have been very cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, supposedly the illustrator of the book claimed to have known who the, who the murderer was. So his name was Luke Fields, um, and he had given instructions by dickens that john jasper he wear a necktie and the idea was that jasper strangles edwin drood with it and he used to have a close collaboration obviously with uh dickens because he liked to seed things that would appear later in the story so maybe maybe he did do it we don't even know that edwin drood died though no we, we don't at the time the book ends he has just disappeared yeah. he might come back most people at the time kind of thought that he was just, he hadn't died, didn't they? Yeah. That was like the prevailing theory at the time. Well, there's another character. Did you mention him? Dick Datchery? Yeah. Some people think that Edwin Drood is Dick Datchery, yeah. who turns up after Edwin Drood disappears. Get yeah. out. I know. Yeah. That would mean yeah. so much more to me if I knew what the story was. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys read this? I haven't. I no. started no. reading it today and I was too hungover to get through it. <laughs> I got through about five pages. Um, I would have thought you were, Anna, because you read yeah. loads of Dickens. I, I chose not to read the one that's only half finished. Um, <laughs> Um, but I do really want to now, partly because people say that it's so impossible to work out what might have happened. Like there was one woman who adapted it for the BBC and she had to finish it a few years ago. And she said, uh, a lot of people know that Dickens didn't finish Edwin Drood. What they don't know is that he died intentionally so that he didn't have to <laughs> because he literally had no idea how to tie up all these loose ends. Yeah. Stephen King has an unfinished work. Now, he's still alive, obviously, but he has an unfinished work. Is it just a thing he's working on at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's called The Plant and it oh, was yeah. a really interesting experiment he did so he published it chapter by chapter online just like Dickens and he asked people to pay for it online a dollar per chapter and he said if the number of people paying for this dips below 75% of the people who are downloading it and reading it then I will stop writing it. And that's exactly oh. what happened after about five chapters. Really? Yeah, so some people were really annoyed because they'd paid six or seven dollars mm. and they didn't get a finished story. But by part four, only 46% of people who downloaded it were paying for it. Really? Yeah. Is it bad? Have you looked at it? I haven't. Do you know read. what it's about? Is it about a plant? It's about an author who I think receives a creepy gift of a plant. Oh, I mean, it doesn't okay. doesn't exactly sound like The Shining, does yeah. it? <laughs> no, I've heard I've heard it's very good, um, and it was just for that reason he was testing the internet mm. model of, of yeah, commerce, and it didn't work for him. But um, he did release, if you remember, his book The Green Mile, which was transformed. <laughs> was made into a movie with transformed <laughs> majestically into the film. We don't have screen. the book anymore because it was transformed into a film. It's transformed into the film Transformers. Yeah. So uh, The Green Mall, he did that with the Dickens model as well. He put out single chapters because mm. the idea was Dickens always used to end on a cliffhanger mm. and he thought, could I do that and could I generate a whole book where I was forcing myself month by month to reveal the next chapter? And yeah, so that's what yeah. The Green Mall is. There's one book that we'll never read. So I looked at a bit of unpublished novels. Oh, yeah. And and Evelyn Waugh wrote uh, his first novel, actually, called The Temple at Thatch in 1925. And then he gave a draft to his friend called Harold Acton. And Acton 
gave it quite a bad review. Uh, so he wrote a letter to Evelyn Waugh saying, suggesting that he do it in a few elegant copies for the friends who really love you. And then he gave a list of the suggested friends and they were all the idiots they knew. And Evelyn Waugh was so upset by this, so devastated, that um, he went, he walked down to the sea, he took all his clothes off, he left a note with a Euripides quote about how the sea can wash away all ills. And then he swam into the sea intending to commit suicide. And he was stung by a jellyfish, so he gave up and returned to shore. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, je- so if it weren't for a jellyfish, we would not have Brideshead Revisited. You don't hear people taking off all their clothes and going into the sea these days, do you? No. You don't get as much used of it. To be, no, yeah. that used to be a thing, didn't it? I think so. Craig Venter, who's famous for sequencing DNA, he did that as well. Um, he, I think he was fighting in the Vietnam War, and he... he... <laughs> well, th- that wasn't a clever tactic, was it? <laughs> right, what we'll do is we'll all leave our clothes at the shore. <laughs> They'll think they've won. Actually, we've gone around in a big boat. <laughs> no, he... Uh, it, that, that's not what happened, Andy. Um... <laughs> you weren't there, man. Yeah, you weren't there, man. <laughs> Uh, no, he got very he got very depressed and he swam out into sea. I think he did exactly that, took all of his clothes off. And then um, while he was quite far out, he suddenly had an empathy that he wanted to live and that he had he wanted to do well in science and so on. And he turned around to come back. And that supposedly is the big problem when you swim too far out and people have a change of mind. You're too far out to have the energy to swim all the way back. Mm. Uh, and so he said that was the hardest struggle of anything he's ever done yeah because he he lost all his energy and then in this moment of sort of near death he realized he wanted to live do you know what happened to terry pratchett's (laughs) unfinished works i think he had about 10 novels on the go at the Mm. time he died sort of in various stages of completion obviously so some much closer than the others but they were crushed by a steamroller after he died Oh, by accident? Or? No, it was deliberate. Right. He decreed in his will that he wanted them to be crushed by a steamroller. But it's paper. No, it was no, a hard drive. Hard Got drive. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I mean, how thin can you get a piece of paper? <laughs> oh no, this piece of paper's completely flattered. <laughs> it was done by a vintage steamroller at a steam fair, and it was called Lord Jericho, the steamroller. Sounds quite cool. It's a good name for a steamroller. Though. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, and it's now it was done as part of a celebration of opening of an exhibition for all his work, and that's now part of the exhibition. His <laughs> his broken hard drive. Yeah, you know, I think Dickens didn't know what happened at the end of Edwin Drood because I didn't realise that the ending of Great Expectations, I think quite famously, originally was different, which is so satisfying because it's always been kind of an annoying ending where, mm. spoilers, guys, close your ears if you haven't read it. Um, so Estella and Pip obviously end up together quite abruptly at the end, sort of end up together. They walk off into the sunset together and the last line is something like, uh, I saw no more shadow of her leaving my side or something yeah. like that. Okay. Um, but in his original one, he probably sent off the publishers and stuff and they'd split up. Estella had she was widowed she then married someone else they had a little meeting and he went oh how sad I guess we'll never be together and then he sent that to the publishers went on holiday with his mate who was uh, a guy called it was Edward Bullerlitton and went on holiday with him, showed him this, and he's, his friend said, that's too miserable, you've got to change it immediately. And so he immediately, quickly, hurriedly changed it wow. and had them end up together. It's quite good as an author if someone says, that's crap, you need to change it, to actually do it, isn't it? Yeah. I know. Because I would have thought he would have just gone, no. What? <laughs> Sod yeah. off, mate. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, Buller Lytton was kind of the leading author of his time, and mm. it's weird, no one really reads him anymore. But he came up with the phrases, the great unwashed and the pen is mightier than the sword. Two phrases I use every day. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, why will you not get on the bus? Uh, because I haven't had my shower yet, and so I am feeling a bit like the great unwashed. <laughs> okay, yeah. that's never the context in which you used. <laughs> you just used it non-metaphorically, you idiot. <laughs> why are you attacking that person with a pen? Oh uh, well, the thing is, James, the pen is mightier than the sword. All oh, right, <laughs> my sword is absolutely tiny, but I've had this special novelty samurai pen built. You <laughs> can take your head off. Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that in the past 10 years, the number of registered pinball players worldwide has gone from 500 to over 100,000. That's wow. a big increase. It's a big jump. How People got really into it. Why do you have to register? 
You you were allowed to play pinball without it's, being officially registered. Okay. But then there is the International uh, Flipper Pinball Association, which is where you officially register if you want to take part in competitions yeah. or just be mm. recognised as a player. And this is, I think it was measured by them in 2006 and there were 500 official players and then NBC reported last year there are over 100,000. And do, it's this huge comeback. Do, do you have to sign the register of pinballers? What do you mean? Well, just normally when there's a yeah, register, you have to sign the register. Do you? Yeah. Uh, no. The only other register I You don't have I to could... sign the sex offenders register, do you? Well, I don't know, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> Why have you got special <laughs> circumstances? <laughs> but in the register at school, they just say your name and you say here. Yeah. That's true, but... Is, is they not, don't do that. There's not a register of pinballers, is there, where they read out no, 50,000 names? So no, no. Have to say it. It's obviously ridiculous. Not all 100,000 people attend every single contest, and you don't need to check them all in before Aaron you can Aaron Dre Aronson. <laughs> and the idea is that uh, pinball is now becoming really fashionable again. Is that what you're saying? That is, does seem to be it. And Forbes cited the BBC as being the first to spot this. In 2012, they ran a piece on how people were getting back into it. And it's thought one of the reasons is actually kind of video games where pinball is one of the games that you can play on certain video games are on computers and so younger kids got into yeah. it on that and then wanted to do the real 3D mm. version. And on phones and stuff, right? Exactly, like Smartphones. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, pinball is great. But it's got quite a checkered history. I think, have we done on QI that it was banned for a long time? Um, we haven't done yet because the P-series isn't going to go out until the end of the year. But I've just a slight mm. feeling that we might mention it at some stage <laughs> in the future. Wow, God, that's that premonition coming yeah. back. Get in there quick, Anna. Um, so Pimble was banned. In 1942, it was banned in New York, and then most big American cities followed because it was kind of seen as gambling, which is a bit weird because you often didn't even win money. I think it was often seen as just a slippery slope because if you play on a pinball machine, you might then play on a proper gambling machine. I yeah. thought you won prizes, though. You, you could, could win prizes. Yeah. Or you could win free games and yeah. stuff couldn't you yeah. and the yeah. gambling bit was because back then what we know as pinball as almost the essential bit of pinball which is the two flipper bits that you press on the side mm -hmm. that didn't exist I know crazy yeah so it was just it was a game of chance it was like roulette yeah. um, you and you, just... you would bet on the result wouldn't you so you bet I think it's going to land in slot whatever and yeah. right yeah then if you got it right you might win yeah. a free go but yeah. it sounds much less fun than having control of the flippers. Yeah, yeah, you were still allowed to like tilt it and nudge it and stuff like that. Oh, I think. Okay. oh okay. Cool. Which they did a lot, didn't they? Yeah, that's kind of how you control it. But yeah, they didn't invent the flippers till 1947, five years after the ban. Mm. And then there was this big trial in America in the 70s when um, this is a guy called Roger Sharp, whose son, Zach, I think is now ranked number one in pinball. But wow. he was hired in 1976 by the MAA, the Music and Amusement Association, to try to be a star witness in this trial that overturned the ban. And he had to prove it was a game of skill, not a game of chance. And there was this amazing moment. Mm. So he played two games. He was moved onto a backup machine because they thought that he might have like tweaked his mm. own machine in his own favor. So he's moved on to a backup machine. He played really well for two goes, and then the judge wasn't that impressed. And he said, okay, if I make it through the middle lane in one shot, will you overturn the ban? And the judge was like, yeah, sure. And he took one shot, and it landed exactly where he said it was going to land. The ball did. Wow. And then the jury voted to overturn it. Yeah. That supposedly happened in darts as well, didn't it? In like did it? 150 years ago or something. Oh, yeah. Like they had to prove that it was a game of skill. And so some guy in Leeds kind of got into court and threw darts where he said they were going to go. Really? And then the judge came up and tried to do it, and he couldn't do it. And he's like, oh, it must be a game of skill then. <laughs> wow. How did they possibly think that was a game of chance? I mean, it's so obviously based on how good you are at aiming something in the board. When I, last time I played darts, it was against my wife, and she beat me. <laughs> and I kind of thought that maybe it was a game of luck. Absolutely <laughs> right. This band was absolutely mad. So Mayor LaGuardia, Fiorello LaGuardia, mm. who the main airport in New York is named after now, um, he said that people who pushed pinball were slimy crews of tin horns, well-dressed and living in luxury on penny thievery. And he was photographed with a sledgehammer smashing up pinball machines. And he ordered the police to make prohibition-style raids on pinball machines. Their top priority. <laughs> top priority. <laughs> New York. It was 1942 as well. Total war. It was the methamphetamine of its day. Yeah, but they, they did ritualistic things to the pinball machines. So he's oh, basically... <laughs> <laughs> Steady on, guys. Um, basically, they said it was a waste of metals, which could be turned into armaments oh, yeah. and bullets. So 5,000 machines fair. were confiscated and destroyed. They were dumped into Long Island Sound. But the metal in the balls was confiscated, and supposedly it was enough to build four 2,000-pound bombs. And the police carved the pinball table legs into cudgels and presented them to Mayor LaGuardia. But well, then they dropped the bomb 
on some enemies, but they just flicked it away, didn't they? <laughs> That's what the Dambusters was based on, actually. Um, and the basically, even though it was illegal, they still used them, didn't they? They just moved them to pornography shops. Right. Yeah. Imagine. Imagine. So if you if you wanted to play pinball, you had to go to a pornography shop. So you'd send your seven-year-old, like, okay, you can play the game, but yeah. God, that's that's terrible. I just think that's a very funny idea. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Very distracting. It'd be much harder to focus, I think, on your pinball game if you're surrounded by porn. Yeah, I would that's have true. thought. Mm. Maybe if I ever join this um, this association and do it professionally. Yeah, I can see you doing that. Then when the other guys are playing, I'm just going to put porn everywhere. <laughs> them. I'm trying to make it like the 40s for you. <laughs> this is classic pinball. I really like LaGuardia. Um, as in, I, I've never really... I've known his name through the airport. I didn't know he was the mayor. I had no idea. Uh, and I saw photos of him, and he looks like a mafia batman villain like he he looks amazing so i thought okay i'll just quickly look into him so there were all this stuff of him being against uh the pinballing and sledgehammering and the prohibition style raids he was someone who was sort of kind of against the alcoholic prohibition that was going on and actively protested it and so he invited 20 newspaper reporters to his congressional office in washington dc and there he drank it in front of them and he had a beer that was admittedly it had low alcohol so i think it was almost on the edge of legality and he mixed it with um with some tonic and he drank it in front of the reporters with a straight face to say look at this i just think that's really pathetic if i think if you're going to make a statement by drinking beer during prohibition don't drink low alcohol yeah. beer mixed with just, some tonic I just have just a proper see you, point Anna, i can just see you if ever there's prohibition in this country <laughs> and you're an mp <laughs> drinking a full bottle of gin on the steps of the house of commons <laughs> None of this. this is the point I am making. <laughs> what was I saying? Where are my keys? <laughs> okay, so given that pinball was banned for such a long time, this is a nice thing. The Museum of Pinball is in a place called Banning in California. Oh, that's very yeah. good. That's really good. Yeah. And I think the, the guy who won the World Championships last year was 13 years old. So this is he's a guy called Escher Lefkoff. And he plays it with his dad, I think. But it really is attracting all ages. It's one one's just opened up in London, actually, in December 2017. We've got our first proper devoted pinball. Let's go. Hall. I think we definitely should go that in Croydon. Cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it on the back burner. <laughs> uh, do you know what a gobble hole is? Nope. I think I do. <laughs> Uh, it's just a hole in the playing field of a pinball machine, which the ball can fall in, ending ending that ball. Oh, that's rough. Ball comes that's in. a yeah. mean move to have in the middle of a pinball yeah. thing to have a thing the ball can fall down. Do you know what a thrust magnet is? Thrust <laughs> magnet. These are names. These are all names of magazines that used to surround the pinball machine, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> a thrust magnet is just an electromagnet that accelerates the ball through a tube. Okay, so it goes quicker. <sighs> Do you know what Drainomatic is? <laughs> no. Oh I got 300 of these. Yeah, yeah, let's keep going until we get one. No, a Drainomatic is a pinball game where the balls are lost too easily. So it's like you just keep losing all the time oh, okay. and it drains your money. Kind of oh, no, like when you go on a fruit machine, but someone's already won it loads, and so it just eats up all your money. Yeah, like that. it doesn't have any left. Damn, the cheating machines. Um, in Japan, arcade games are very much more popular than they are here, and they've got such a good array of them. Have you guys come across the tablecloth hour game? No. I really like this. It's, it's an arcade game, but instead of having like a joystick or buttons that you press, it's got um, a sticking out bit that's like the edge of a tablecloth, like something hanging over a table. And then on the screen, there's lots of crockery, and you just <laughs> pull the tablecloth off. That sounds and really good. See if you can avoid breaking the crockery. That's incredible. Have you done that in real life? Tried to do that in real life? No, it's I didn't really do that. It's yeah. really hard. It's really Because I used to work in a restaurant. And I used to try it all the Not time. for long, I bet. <laughs> Your wages were docked every week. Bolton <laughs> Smasher fired from 10th restaurant in a row. <laughs> but of course, you have lots of crockery and you have tablecloths. What else are you going to do if you're a teenager? Can you're going to try it. Can you? it really be done? I guess it, it could be done if you're really, really fast, it, right? It could be done like for just one, one object. You could kind mm, of do okay. it. But more often than not, it would just go flying. <laughs> 
funny. Doesn't, haven't we said before there's a Japanese arcade game where you have to poke oh, yeah, a robot th- bottom? Yes, with your finger. Yes. This is a game where it's a sort of prank on your friend to stick your finger oh, really? at their bottom. Yeah. <laughs> because there is a prank in Japan yeah. known as the enema. I can't remember what their word for it is. <laughs> and you go through all the different games and you have to do it to the teacher and then to the policeman and then someone else. And the game is just to poke them in, in real the real life? No, no, no in it's the, in the game. game. Oh, it's yeah. in the game. But the prank is a real life thing. Right. It's like, you know, like a wet willy where you put yeah. your finger in someone's ear. It's like that, but with an anus. <laughs> with an anus. <laughs> it's much harder to shove your finger up someone's anus, I think. Yeah. Especially when everyone's wearing clothes, also, which they almost always are. You say the words wet willy before you do it as well. Sounds a bit bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're all going to have to sign the register. I'm <laughs> Okay, it's time to move on to fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the Victorians had better reaction times than we do today. Did they? What? (laughs) (laughs) Did they? That's a good question, Anna, because did they? (laughs) The thing is, some people think they may have done. Mm, Okay. Uh, And this is because... We, have, we can work out what people's reactions times are now by doing studies and stuff. And we have some old results um, done by friend of the podcast, Francis Galton, who we've talked about lots of times. I mean, major eugenicist, probably an acquaintance of the podcast, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> but it was in a time when eugenics was cool, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, which is not now, of course. Um, <laughs> but his um, statistics show that people who he studied had quicker reactions than people today. And so it could be that his uh, data are wrong, uh, or it could be that people have gotten less quick. Yeah. Mm. Which, do you, people, which do you think it is? I think people have come up with reasons why it might be that we're slower. Mm. Like maybe there's a lot more contaminants in the air and your brains have got more mercury in them or, or whatever. Your brains have got more stuff in them that are making them slower. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. The, there are a lot of serious people who think this is true. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my favorite one is in the 20th century, there was a scholar called Erwin W. Silverman who believed the reason that we got slower reactions is because height has increased. Therefore, it's taken longer for things to travel to the brain or from the brain. So oh. it's that extra bit of time. Does that not sort of make sense a bit? I think they found that tall people are just as fast. Oh, okay. Yeah. But wait, from where? Because most reactions are based on you seeing something and responding to it. Yeah. And your eyes don't get further from your brain as you get taller. Yeah. <laughs> not... No, that's true. I can understand if someone stamps on your foot. Maybe it takes you a bit longer now to back away. But yeah. it doesn't make any sense at all. I retract my earlier comment then. It doesn't actually act anything. It does make sense. My favourite guy who studied this was um, the 93rd most cited psychologist of the 20th century. He is called Edwin Boring. <laughs> He's my favourite psychologist. I just love him. Um, one day maybe we'll talk about him. But his most famous thing that he did was work out why one reason why moons look bigger when they're on the horizon than when they're up in the sky. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I just like the idea that he was cited in so many papers because his name was boring. I think so it must be. people slagging him off indirectly by just putting a little asterisk in at the bottom saying, boring! <laughs> <laughs> I read that um, one of the things to help, uh, this is done, a team of uh, Japanese scientists and researchers uh, came out with these results saying a, th- a way of getting your reactions to be better is to chew gum. Mm. Um, which is really interesting. Really? I, yeah, I'd not heard that before. So they they did this... They did this experiment where they said that um, chewing on gum improves the participant's reaction time by 7%, which is an average of 36 milliseconds. Uh, Doesn't sound like a lot, but the point is made that in, say, like sport, where it takes less than half a second for a baseball pitcher to pitch a ball to the mitt... That's that's obviously a huge amount of time. Right. Um, so what they say is is that it only takes ten seconds of chewing to activate the brain regions that are responsible for improving your reactions. And after you've done the ten seconds, it keeps it active for fifteen minutes. Wow! So you buy fifteen minutes of extra reaction time off ten seconds of chewing gum. You are chewing steroids, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, Congratulations, that is... by the way, on the Tour de France win, Dan. Um, <laughs> do we know what the mechanism is that? Mm, is it know. that chewing saliva means that you're... According to this, it says uh, your jaw muscles, when you chew, stimulate certain regions of your brain, including the premotor cortex. Mm. Okay. okay. Works for me. Well, that cool. sounds like science. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> I got it from science.com. <laughs> 
So uh, on reaction times, um, you know the thing of uh, gunfights in films? Yes. Where there are two cowboys facing each other, and obviously the bad guy draws first because he's an evil trickster and he's trying to legitimately gain an advantage in the gunfight by shooting first. Mm -hmm. And then the good guy draws second but always wins. Mm -hmm. So Niels Bohr, one of the most famous physicists of all time, was obsessed with this. And he theorized that gunslingers who draw second, Mm. they draw faster because they're not thinking. It's just, it's an instinctive reaction. It's like a separate Ah. circuit that works. It's almost like a reflex reaction. Interesting. And he staged mock duels with toy guns at his lab in between all the other important stuff he was doing. And his partner, George Gamow, drew first and lost every time. However, it's recently been proved by a University of Birmingham study that he was partially right, but it wouldn't quite help. So if you draw second, if you draw responding to... If I'm facing you, Anna, and you mm-hmm. draw, I see you drawing and I draw first, yeah. you're about 10% faster when you draw second than when you draw first. Uh-huh. But the difference that it would make is only 21 milliseconds. That's enough. And is that not, yeah. It's, if someone's already pulled a gun on you, it's likely that you won't be able to... I will, be, I will be 21 milliseconds faster, but the, the gap in time between Anna starting yeah. and me starting mm. will still be longer than 21 milliseconds, so mm. I'll still die. So... The scientist who studied this, Andrew Welchman, he said, you'll die satisfied that you are quicker, but that's not much to you. I don't understand how, if you're using fake guns, not real guns, you can tell who got hit first. I think they kind of had a... I'm not a bit sure. like a paintball. A paintball or yeah. something. Paintballs. Yeah. Yeah, you know that okay, paintballs are edible. So if you got shot in the mouth, <laughs> you're laughing, yeah, and you're full. It's just, yeah. Are they they're nice? Edible. No, they're really not nice. Right. But they're they're made of like food coloring, <laughs> and the um the outer shell is like some kind of plant-based material. After you were fired from every restaurant in Bolton, James actually went to work at a paintball place from which he was sacked for eating, eating the ammo. <laughs> you can't get away with it because you've just got red stuff all around your mouth. No. I love, by the way, the only two scientists we've cited so far are boring and bore. That's quite cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so other reaction time things uh, in running races, if you're if you're doing a sprinting race, then if you move within 0.1 seconds of the starting gun going off, that counts as a false start. That's so even so if you move after the starting gun going off, you've made mm, a false start amazing. because it's thought that, well, it's known that you can't possibly have reacted that fast to mm. the gun going off. So you must have started before you heard it go off. But that 0.1 is based on an experiment that was done in 1865 and it still stands today. So it was done in 1865 oh. by a scientist called Franciscus Cornelis Donders, who was actually an ophthalmologist, but he also worked out reaction times. He gave electric shocks to people's feet and then he had them squeeze stuff with their hands with a corresponding hand and it was how quick it was for people to go oh fuck you still electrocuted my feet go on the interesting thing about that was really really short people actually reacted much much faster than really tall people which Um, is why the best sprinters are so short look at Usain Bolt he's only three foot nine I spent all day on the internet just testing my reaction time and I agree that I don't think you can get quicker than 0.1 seconds it's kind of impossible because you can't yeah. Well, it's so far away from my best. <laughs> it's hard to imagine anyone. What, are you on eight or nine seconds? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we had a very heavy night last night. Can I just add just a little bit of trivia about Donders, which I quite like? He's apparently also known very well in the world of dentistry, as well as being an ophthalmologist and a reaction time experimenter, because he named the space between the dorsum, the back of your tongue, and the hard palate. So the gap when you're at rest between the back of your tongue and the roof of your mouth is called the Space of Donders. Cool. Wow. Just named that. That's very cool. That's awesome. It's good to know. Um, Andy, uh, you met. Uh, you mentioned Usain Bolt a second mm-hmm. ago. Um, I was looking into sprinters as well, and uh, there's an article written by this guy who claims that Usain Bolt could have broken his world record speed times for the 100 meters not by running faster. He could have run at the consistent time that he was doing and still beat it it was his starting point it was his reaction to the gun he's he's famously has a slow start doesn't he incredibly slow start so he when he was in the beijing olympics he was the slowest of all the finalists to leave um what do you call it leave the the starting block the starting blocks um so this guy worked out that at beijing his starting time his reaction was 
0.165. If he was able to bring that down to 0.13, he would have brought his world record from 9.58 to 9.56. So he would have shaved two milliseconds off that. And that's not even a hard one to get. That's sort of your average finalist will sprint at that speed mm. off the starting blocks. And the reason is, so if you go online now, if you're listening to this and you try these games where it's like you're look you're looking at it and it changes color and you have to press the button as quickly as you can it's different to seeing things as to hearing things and i think you're quicker at hearing things than you are at seeing things right. i believe yes you are so your audio um response time is usually lower than your yeah that's true i know a really weird thing about audio response times so athletes who are closer to the starting gun do better now that's partly because you're closer so you get an advantage of about 15 milliseconds in the, in the closest lane compared with all the other lanes on average, right? Mm. Wow, that's quite a lot. It is really? quite a lot, that's but, but there's, not, there's oh, another reason for this. Okay, I, Sorry, just to say, yeah. I thought they had um, they have speakers behind the blocks. I think you're right. They now have speakers mm. behind the blocks. So this was in, in races where you would have just one gun mm. at the side uh, being fired. But the weird thing is, it's not just that you're closer, it's that... The louder you hear the gunshot, the faster your reaction time. The volume has an effect. You react to Is louder noises right? faster. Oh, wow. Is it because you're like scared of it? Do you I think? think it must be. Because it's like an evolutionary else. thing. Yeah. Yeah. How cool is that? That's, That's really cool. cool. You're right, otherwise they wouldn't have to do it nearly as loud. So actually, it's an advantage in running a race if you have a big ear trumpet, which you carry next to you on the starting blocks. <laughs> but do you think that advantage <laughs> is lessened by the fact you have to carry your ear trumpet along Well, with you? it never did me any harm on school sports day, I have to say. <laughs> I was actually looking at if sports because I was thinking this thing about reaction time is sort of based on IQ. So a lot of people seem to think, or that's very contentious, that reaction time is related to IQ or how smart you are. Hmm. So the idea is that the Victorians might have been cleverer than us. So I was thinking sports people often have very fast reactions if you're like a table Mm. tennis player or something. So I was wondering if they were cleverer. And this is a long-winded way of saying, I ended up finding out that Marion Bartoli, who was my favourite tennis player for a while, has an IQ that is almost off the charts. So she has an IQ of 175, which <laughs> wow. as soon as you're over 140, then you're very bright. If you're over 160, you're proper genius. And she's, wow. she's there. And she said, um, I'm not really someone that's into telling people about you know how smart I am. I'm kind of trying to hide it. And that's what she said to reporters. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> when she published her so IQ results. Exactly. <laughs> not that smart, is she? <laughs> <laughs> There's a fly which has the fastest reaction time, I think, of any um, animal. Mm-hmm. So it's called the condylostylus fly. And it's so fast that it's almost impossible to take a photo of it lying still. What do you mm. mean? So it has a startle reflex of about two milliseconds. And it's scared of cameras. Mm. It's, scared, well, the flash. It's, it's scared of the flash. So Just do it without a flash. Well, yeah. you're Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, that's this bit. Yeah, on we go. Fine. <laughs> Um, it's got this reflex of about two milliseconds so if you take a photo with uh, a shutter speed of one two hundredth of a second which is a very fast shutter speed as Mm -hmm. they go you will almost always capture it in flight because that's five milliseconds so nine out of ten times you take the picture you just get the flight in movement you know how when you take a photo of a load of people there's always someone with their eyes kind of half closed yeah Mm -hmm. These guys, like, if you have, if they want a family photo of all these flies, it's just a blur. <laughs> the chances of them all being there is pretty low. Yeah, and, but the, so there's a possible reason for it, which is that they're so brightly coloured. They're really brightly coloured flies, and that we think this is because they are trying to teach predators not to bother trying to hunt them because mm. they always get away. So they're trying to teach the predator to associate that bright colouring on them with don't even bother. No, that doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't, if you can really get away that fast, then you don't need something that warns them. That sounds like they're <laughs> bluffing. Like, yeah. like, Honestly, don't worry about it. I, it would be a waste of effort. But then again, like you get these really um, poisonous frogs don't you that are really brightly colored yeah the and they don't predators to, yeah. why are they all thinking in the best interest of the predators <laughs> I mean, it's sweet but okay it is time for our final fact of the show and that is andy my fact is that the first people to live on the moon might be cavemen might be. Might be. Might not be. Yeah, my notes actually begin, well, they might. <laughs> uh, uh, so why might they? Because um, it's obviously going to be very uncomfortable living on the moon. No one's going to have a great time. But if we want to get into space and colonise somewhere, the moon is not a terrible candidate. And a Japanese space probe called Selene has just found a massive cave on the moon, which would solve a load of the problems of living on the moon. Um it's 31 miles long. It's 100 metres wide, so it's a huge cave. We could get loads of 
lunar cities in there if we wanted to. It's uh, 31 miles by 100 metres. What did I say? Sorry. Yeah, no, you said that. I just think you can't get that many cities. No, it's still going to be a bit cramped. It's going to be smaller. London is like, what, 40 miles in diameter? I guess, yeah. But like the M25 is about that. You're it's, just doing very, a bit of a sleazy be... estate agent job here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very roomy, lovely. You could put a partition wall in here if you wanted to. Um, so they think it's a lava tube created during volcanic activity. And the problem with living on the moon, one of many problems, is... <laughs> there are so many. But the temperature is 107 degrees Celsius in daytime and minus 153 Celsius at night. So any equipment is going to have to deal with that, which is a real pain. Yeah, and all the radiation from space and all the asteroids hitting you all the time. Yeah. Mm. So, it's just so, not, it's yeah. not a great place to live. But if you're in a cave, you get much less radiation. And Better the temperature than Croydon. <laughs> <laughs> there is no pinball in these tunnels. And until there is, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's because... Um, so the moon has no atmosphere, obviously. So the reason that we're at the... Mike like Croydon. Damn it. No, you drew first, James. All, was that, the all that reaction time practice you put in has paid off, James. You're miles ahead of me. So the moon has no atmosphere. Um, it's, so its temperature fluctuates massively. So Earth's temperature is quite stable because the heat from the sun is dispersed a bit by the air particles. But don't have that on the moon. So if the sun's not on you, then like you say, you're ice cold. It's a nightmare. But I don't really understand this asteroid thing. So asteroids hit the moon far more often. They do make out like that's going to be a big issue. Just little mm. guys, like little asteroids that would kind of burn um, up burn if... up in the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, yeah. uh, the little pebble, mm. pebbly yeah. ones. Yeah. But that's that would danger. be quite awkward, wouldn't it? Like, I know they're small, but if you're getting hit by them all the time... <laughs> it's so annoying. Yeah. Can you imagine? Well, and the damage they can do, it's like with the stuff that's going around our planet, if it, if even a something the size of a bullet hits uh, the International Space Station, <laughs> it could shatter it, the speeds that they're going at. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, a yeah. bullet is traditionally a harmful thing to be hit by as well. <laughs> yeah, I know, I don't know why. <laughs> even a bullet. <laughs> Let's imagine. <laughs> um, uh, one of the problems, though, if you live inside one of these tubes, is that the moon constantly suffers from moonquakes... Uh, I think they believe that these lava tubes can suffer huge internal damage mm. off the back of it, collapse and so on. <laughs> yeah. As a, uh, just with my estate agent's hat on, I'd like to say this one's absolutely fine. The previous tenants, no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Screaming from under the rubble. <laughs> Um, and co cosmic radiation is a problem on the moon, and that's something that we're trying to deal with. So this is kind of, it gets hit by all sorts of stuff that we've talked about before. So the moon gets caught in the solar wind, the solar tail sometimes, and gets hit by all these damaging particles. And I think the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which went up to the moon from NASA a few years ago, sent a plastic replica of human skin, which measured how much damage this what? kind of radiation will do. Wow. And it worked out that it is quite a bit of damage. To human bodies. Why would we not just send up human skin? Because <laughs> I, I think human skin's not alive, I guess. Oh, and okay, maybe it's yeah. hard. Uh, maybe. Did, we send, did we send up a Ken doll? <laughs> yes, because yeah. that is the perfect replica of the human body. It's a plastic replica of human skin. Yeah, but yeah. then you won't see what happens to the genitals. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> Which is important because it is. might make you infertile if you have all this radiation passing through you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a day on the moon is 14 Earth days and a night is 14 Earth nights if you're on the equator. So it's just not going to be fun, isn't it? Well, mm. Nice long line in the morning. Yeah, that, that's true. But, but then a long day at work. Oh, yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> There's not that much work to do there, I don't think, yet. No, but yeah. why would anyone want to live on the moon? Like, what is the point? Mm. Well, I watched some interviews with those people who were signed up for the Mars mission to mm. go to Mars, and a lot of them say things like, I haven't really been able to find a girlfriend, so I don't really see any point. Might find on one Earth. on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Mum, Dad, Dad, nice to see you on the video link. This is Janice. She's a dead microbe, but she's mine and I love her. <laughs> she's a plastic replica of human skin. <laughs> I think it would be scientists, right? It's like the same as Antarctica. No one lives in Antarctica apart from scientists, so yeah. it would be the same, right? Yes. Um, yeah. But I read one article that said um, one of the advantages of going to the moon is it might be so terrible that it will force us to accept that the earth is the only decent place to live and will make us look after the earth better that is a good oh, argument I mean, the earth is yeah. so much better than the moon yeah well, it's, it's like better at some things well, name one thing the moon's better at um. <laughs> it's got better craters i think if, if that's what you're into we've got craters it's got better ones yeah okay. it does. it's got bigger mountains yeah i'm not booking my ticket just yet guys <laughs> you guys have turned into the travel agents <laughs> The sky is always black as well, which I don't think I would like, just because I guess we're not used to it. 
But even in daytime, yeah. your 14 day day, the sky's totally black. I think that's really creepy. Because the, the only reason the sky is blue is because, again, oh, of the atmosphere. The and so I, I can't even conceive of total broad daylight, but with a black sky. No, that doesn't make any it sense. It doesn't work. How can my... that be right? Because it's bright, but it's dark. It's bright, but it's black. That's, I think that can't be true. That's weird. It's true. You can't compute it, but it's the case. Because what other, I mean, what other colour is it going to be? No, I do believe you, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's too much for my brain to manage. Do you know what the main problem would be if we, well, I mean, sorry, we've, we've just been through about 15 of the main problems. But according to Eugene Cernan, who's the last man to walk on the moon, um, the main problem would be the dust. They spent most of their time dusting on that last mission to the moon. Yeah, because they, um, they had like a um, vacuum cleaner to get all the dust off their stuff and it clogged up the black vacuum cleaner. Really? Yeah. Um, but you know what the main problem is? <laughs> so spots are going to be very difficult. Yeah. And the reason is like you can jump and throw balls much better. Mm. Um, this is according to an article on space.com. Um, so you can throw a ball maybe like ten t- six times higher or six times further, but that means that your American football field, which is what they were talking about, <laughs> would have to be 600 yards long. And so you need that space. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. You don't have the space because it's a small like planet. Tennis will be quite crap as well because <laughs> uh, topspin doesn't work. So all really? the best, like Nadal's game is going to go completely to pot because the reason topspin works is because of the, it's the Bernoulli effect that I think we've mentioned before. It's about how air pressure acts differently on one side of a spinning ball to the other. And so that means that topspin brings the ball down into the court faster than it would otherwise go because of this effect. And with no atmosphere on the moon, again, you're not having topspin working. So all of Nadal's shots go out. What about yeah. cricket? Is this possibly the one place where we can ascertain we're going to have a fair cricket match? <laughs> Why, because there's no Australians there. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, guys, our Brisbane date has really not sold so far. And we don't know why. Um, but Mar- Marion Bartoli might be able to work it out before anyone else. That's what I'm thinking, because she's so smart. You're right. <laughs> like, she would oh, be yeah. able to work out the trajectories and stuff. The perfect I, way to hit I'm it. I'm actually interested in going to the moon a bit more now that we know that topspin doesn't work, because it just <laughs> levels that playing field when I'm playing a bit, <laughs> a little bit. Um, so there was a guy in 1964 who uh, made a bet. He was a British man called David Threlfall. And you remember President Kennedy promised in about 1961, we're going to get to the moon by the end of the decade. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And they squeaked in in 1969. Um, he bet in 1964 that uh, man would get to the moon before the end of the decade. And William Hill gave mods of 1,000 to 1, but they did take the bet. And when they landed on the moon, he was taken to a TV studio and he became a minor celebrity. He was presented with a cheque for £1,000, which was a lot of money at the yeah. time. Yeah. It's about £180,000 in today's money. And the really tragic thing was he died the next year in a crash of the car that he bought with the winnings. No. Oh, yeah. no. That's awful. It's a sad story. Oh. oh, thank you for telling us. <laughs> Should we end on that? <laughs> um, I, I looked into if you move to the moon, um, there's a lot of stuff that is left there by previous missions that you can oh, collect yeah. to make your house a bit more interesting. <laughs> um, so I was, I was it's just not interesting enough that you're the only person living on the moon. <laughs> oh yeah, I need to have a space, some boots, <laughs> some bagged up feces. You, you... <laughs> um, well, there's... come around to my house, Dan. You can have bagged up feces in your own home. <laughs> Very easy. You've got a baby. You should know all about bagged up feces. <laughs> My house is bagged up feces at the moment. Um, there's some Andy Warhol art up on the moon. Oh, wow. Yeah. There. Yeah. There's a cock and balls that he drew. He drew a cock and balls. He paraded it as his as his initials, an A and a W. It artistically done, the W was upside down and the and the A. But really? Yeah. That sounds like an M and an A. It, and it's what it looks like as well. Yeah. That's silly. Yeah. It's extremely confusing. It's Andy Murray's painting. If you do it like that, yeah, we've, we've done yes. the same thing. You're right. Yeah. So that's how it comes, and that's why I thought it looked like an M. But he's right. No, you've just you've <laughs> been having that work of art upside down. I've been looking time. at it upside down. You've hung it wrong. It's badly yeah. hung. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this was a this was a kind of it was a mini little piece of art where six different artists uh, contributed to it. Andy Warhol was one of them, and it was put on this wafer small size little thing that was meant to be taken up. Uh, but NASA disagreed. For Sorry, it. What's, what's happening? Just drawing cock and balls. Why are you drawing more cock and balls? Well, I've just worked out. My name is Andrew Murray, and look at that. That's an A and an M. 
And it also <laughs> looks like it, I think I've got a new signature <laughs> for the my, next book. Yeah. My driving license people are going to be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, put that down, Andy. Go on down. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, they they submitted it as wanting to take it to the moon, but uh, it was rejected. But it was actually smuggled up there. Uh, a lot of smuggling happened, yeah, uh, in the early days. Like Buzz Aldrin, I think, smuggled up the communion that he brought up to the yes. moon and so on. People did like to smuggle stuff. So Holy you can get... Communion. Holy mm. communion, he should Holy communion, it. you're right. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very nice. Okay. So Andy Warhol art is up there. There's also a feather from a falcon up there. Cool. Just a single feather, which Why? is really cool. It was done as part of an experiment. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that Yeah, one. the Apollo 12 experiment. What they wanted to do was recreate the idea of seeing whether or not the idea of a bowling ball and what was yeah, it so the Galileo um, supposedly dropped two um, balls from the uh, Leaning Tower Leaning Tower of Pisa, Pisa. Yeah, and they landed at the same time because yeah. it's independent of mass and they tried it with a bowling ball and a feather uh, and proved that it was true. Yeah, a hammer and a feather on hammer the moon. Yeah, so, um, I mean to take a. It's yeah. If the most powerful rocket can only take three men and a bit of kit to the moon, yeah. taking a bowling ball seems like a needless experiment. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was the Air Force Academy's Falcon mascot. They have a mascot, and they wow. plucked off one of its feathers, and that still lives on the moon. So that could be part of your house. So just to be clear, is that because there's no air resistance? Because obviously, yeah, if you drop yeah. a hammer and a feather, the feather will float down because of air resistance. In, yeah. On Earth, it would. Yeah. But on the moon, they drop it the same. Exactly That's cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I was just looking at you know things that we'd have to train to learn to do when we get to the moon, mm. and I don't think we've mentioned before that all astronauts at the moment who go into space have to do toilet training. So you have to be re-toilet trained. Really? Have we talked about this? No, because so, I, I didn't know that. So, so they've forgotten how to do it. They, it makes you forget how to <laughs> urinate. Yeah. No, it's so NASA. You can't have the same designed loos in space because um, stuff might kind of get out of them. So when you sit on the loo, it's a very very small mm. aperture that you have to mm. aim your stuff into. Mm. So um, the opening of a toilet in space is four inches wide, and usually our loos are eighteen inches wide, like fifteen to eighteen inches wide. That's not four inches, Andy. No. <laughs> oh, I thought it was. <laughs> Disappointing day all around. <laughs> Um, um, but no, you've got... So NASA has a specially designed toilet training room. It's at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And it's actually got two different toilets in it. So in this room, it's got a positional toilet. <laughs> and that's not functional. That's just so you learn how to position yourself properly on the toilet. And actually, that's... Oh, no. I'm sure some training astronauts have mistaken the positional one where you're just practicing... For the functional oh, it's one. it's like when you go at the showroom, at the bathroom <laughs> showroom. Is that, God, better is that just, a thing? Better just try this one out. That's a comedy trope, isn't it? Is it? That's where you got kicked out of Ikea that time, isn't <laughs> it? <true. laughs> Um, so yeah you got the show toilet and that tests your aim and it's got a little camera inside it that looks up at you that, so you can Great. then review the footage afterwards oh. to check that you've aimed right and then when you're ready for it you can transition onto the actual functional toilet which is also in the training room where you can practice how to flush and Did, stuff and, okay I have a question are mm. there any astronauts who have aced every single <laughs> other metric but just haven't been allowed to go to space because of the toilet stuff <laughs> <laughs> always ends up on the floor I don't know that I mean, must be right like if you can that. That's true. You if have you to pass. Do it. You have to. That's one of them. Actually, that's probably one of the more important things to get right in. A, yeah. a, well, a flying, the, flying the rocket is quite important. Like. <laughs> yeah. Come on, they pretty. They've probably got autopilot stuff today. Uh, but yeah, if they? you've got a cabin full of poo floating around, <laughs> that is Houston. We have a big problem. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yeah, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our Facebook page, no such thing as a fish, or no such thing as a fish.com, which is our website. We have links to our tours, our books, all of the previous episodes that are up online. We will be back again next week with another podcast. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.